Leslie Golden was a pole dancer in small town Texas with a teeny Instagram following until a whirlwind weekend in LA where she blew up online. From there, she entered a new world, one where partying in LA mansions, jet-setting to Thailand, and getting glammed up for brand campaigns was all part of a day's work. Leslie is just one of many influencers who got famous on the internet and then tried to flip that clout into a whole new life. On This Blew Up, I'm going to show you how social media stardom is made, from the spawn con to the content houses, and how it all adds up to a new kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. When attention is the ultimate currency, what lengths will you go to to get it? And who's going to want a piece of your success? From the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Flew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Hey, every single album listeners, it's Nora. You are about to hear a pod that Nathan and I recorded on Monday, October 31st, where we did a Q&A breaking down more about Midnight's and how we're feeling now that we've had over a week to digest the album. But as you probably know, Taylor's going on tour, the Eras tour, which she announced Tuesday morning, uh, unhelpfully after we'd recorded. Come on, Taylor, throw us a bone. But in the later half of this pod, we do talk a lot about what Midnight's is going to be like live and how the album affects her touring strategy. Most of it, I think, holds up, but keep in mind that the announcement wasn't out yet when we taped when you're listening to that part or just laugh at us for getting clowned. We're going to have more related to tour coming sometime soon for you guys, but for now, here's the pod. And welcome to every single album, Taylor Swift. I'm Nora Princiati. As always, I am here with Nathan Hubbard. Nathan, a week plus after the release of Midnight's, how are you doing? Not as well as all of the individual tracks that are dominating the Billboard Hot 100. She's got all 10 in the top 10, Nora. It's actually out of control. I saw a tweet being like, for the first time ever, there are no men in the top one in the top 10. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's because it's all Taylor Swift. She wants us to know, though. I mean, there's no... And it's okay. We don't need to, you know, walk on eggshells around the fact that she cares about these numbers. She cares about the massive sales numbers we saw this week. She cares about these traditional metrics for whatever reason. She's only cryptic and Machiavellian and taking up all 10 spots. Yeah, she likes trophies. Because she cares. I'm only cryptic and Machiavellian because I care about 
She wants trophies well, on the mantle. And there are a lot of them. We're going to yeah. talk about that. We wanted to get together with a little bit of time passed since we went through Midnight's, potted about it, got a chance to think about it, had a chance to process. Yes, I think I, I'll speak for myself. I've caught up on sleep a little bit since then. So hopefully we're both a little bit more coherent. But we wanted to just revisit some some thoughts about the album, keep talking about it, and figured the best way to do that was to involve everybody else in the conversation. So we've collected a bunch of your guys's questions from Twitter and Instagram. And when I say a bunch of, who am I kidding? I mean, 13, obviously. So we're just going to bat them around and, and have some fun. You ready to get started? Yes, I am. Okie dokie. So question number one is from Tevi who asks, what has been your biggest change of opinion slash revelation since the last pod was recorded? Everyone wants to know what you're going to say about this. I, I have to say, not much of my thinking about this album has changed. The thing that has evolved for me, I can't figure out if this album is striking the general public in the heart or not. All of these numbers are insane. And it feels to me like this is Taylor's army at work. I mean, there's a difference. You know, Nora, we were... <laughs> somehow this podcast was quoted in the Wall Street Journal twice this past week. Good job yeah, by I'm, us. I'm now licensed to give financial advice. <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah. But, but like, it occurs to me that like the only other two online fan bases that I think are remotely comparable are Beyonce and BTS's fan bases. But the difference with... I, I just, I think it's one. I think it's BTS. Beyonce okay. is a different thing. And different does not mean worse. Beyonce is in, is more culturally significant as trendsetter is not a meaningful enough word. But as, as someone who defines the way that we think about culture, mm -hmm. Beyonce is in, in some ways more meaningful. In terms right now of like scope and reach, I, I think Taylor and BTS are the only two. Well, the difference for me is that th I think Beyonce and BTS's fan bases sort of have a mind of their own. Like, you know, when BTS like bought out the Trump rally, BTS's yeah. army did that. But like <laughs> yeah. Taylor, Taylor is the general of her army. She directs her fans what to do. She literally gave them a calendar, a visual daily planner telling them each day of this past week what to do. And they have responded in kind. So I am just thinking a lot about and still curious about whether this album has actually grown her fan base or whether her fan base is just so intense and so engaged and so ready to take her exact instructions and ride or die for her. And we'll talk about the vinyl sales numbers, which are the biggest indication ever that they you know, are doing that. Is this album just a, a manifestation and a sort of indication of the insanity of the Swifties? Or has this album actually grown her fan base and struck at something larger in culture? I don't know the answer. What do you think? So I, this sort of gets into what my biggest change, if you want to call it, that has been. Because I think like you, I feel the same about most songs. The songs that I loved, you know, there's certain things like I'm really hammering play on Glitch right now because I just think it sounds Glitch really cool. Glitch is awesome. Cool. It must be counterfeit. A 
There's stuff like that where where they're not like the huge songs. So in the first, I don't know, 20 listens, they didn't stand out as much and they're starting to now that I'm getting to spend even more time with it. In general, though, the songs I loved are the songs that I love and the songs that didn't hit as hard still aren't, you know, there's been nothing that I've flipped 180 on. Mm -hmm. But the question that you're getting at about whether or not this is an album for the core fan base, or if this is an album for sort of like everybody, you know, the entire planet. Which you think a pop album might be. Well, so it's a pop album. What you just said is the important thing, right? Like almost all of these songs work on radio. They work in a lot of different contexts. They're fun to listen to. You can play them in the car. You can play them in a party. So there is something that's very, you know, lowercase d democratic, broad, broadly applicable, something for everybody on this album, which I think kind of masks the fact that ultimately it is an album for the fan base. Mm-hmm. Because the thing that has has solidified or become more and more clear about like truly what Midnight's is to me with some time is just how much of a career retrospective it is. Because I don't think that in the way that like the songs that musically match up with other songs mean that they're about the same moment. Like I think if you go track by track, that doesn't really work. But I just think that this album is her processing kind of her entire life And one of the songs, probably the song that's really done that for me is You're On Your Own, Kid, where, and people have done a good job like making TikToks of this and stuff, but like the literal lyrics chronologize all of her different eras. And you can go through from something different bloomed, writing in my room, I play my songs in the parking lot, I run away, debut. Something different bloomed, writing in my room, I play my songs in the From sprinkler splashes to fireplace ashes, I called a taxi to take me there. Fearless, she's living on her own. She's becoming a celebrity. From sprinkler splashes to fireplace ashes, I called a taxi to take me there. You're on your own, kid. You always have been. Speak now. She does it all by herself. It's an album where she gets to the end of the line and knows that the people that got her that far, got there with her, couldn't go any further by her side. Always have been. Then sprinkler splashes to fireplace ashes. I gave my blood, sweat, and tears for this. Red, this album she wanted to be a crowning achievement. I hosted parties and starved my body like I'd be saved by a perfect kiss. That's 1989. I hosted parties and starved. The jokes weren't funny. I took the money. My friends from home don't know what to say. Reputation. The jokes weren't funny. I took the money. My friends from home don't know what to say. I looked around in a blood-soaked gown and I saw something they can't take away. Lover. Because there were pages turned with the bridges burned. 
Folklore and Evermore, these storybook albums that were her next chapter after that. Everything You Lose is a Step You Take, re-recording all her albums. So make the friendship bracelets, take the moment and taste it. You've got no reason to be afraid. Midnight's this thing that looks back on literally everywhere she's been. Make the friendship. So one, and she talked about this a little bit on Friday when she was on the Graham Norton show, it is completely no mistake that as she was doing this work of re-recording her old catalog, this was the type of original album that would come out of that same period. It's something that's very personal to me and it's a lot of work, but it's like, it's, it's really fun and rewarding for me. And I can't believe people have actually gotten behind it the way they have. And two, to me, the the takeaway from that that's sort of forward spinning is I have no idea what she's going to do next. I don't really think that you, you think can look does? at this. I don't know. I, I I don't know. If she does, it's a secret because I just don't think that, you know, it, it, it's my instinct to look at an album and go, okay, what's on here that is the next album appetizer that tells us sort of where the arrow might be pointing. I think all the arrows on Midnight's are pointing backwards. I think this is someone who's done a lot of work on herself, wanting to revisit a lot of moments with that fresh perspective. And because of that, I do think that at its core, it's an album for the people who were there through those moments and get it. And now she is too, it's always going to be a little bit hard to decipher that just because one, the people who have been there for, for all of those moments that adds up to a lot of people. She's got a lot of core fans who know all the in-jokes and are going to make the TikToks and do all of that stuff. That's not a small group, as evidenced by not just the number of people who are streaming this thing, but the number of people who are going to the lengths of buying the vinyls and, and participating in those higher barrier entry ways. And then plus, it is a kind of mainstream pop sounding thing. So it's just accessible enough, I think, to come off as, oh, this could be for absolutely anybody. You don't need to know a thing about Taylor Swift to get this mm. album, to like this album. You don't need to know any of her old songs to get these songs, to like these songs. But I do think the real meaning of it and the real value of it lies in being able to look back, knowing where she's been on this thing. And, and I think I heard a little bit of that on the first few listen-throughs. We obviously talked about the sonic influences and how it feels like she's sampling herself and how she literally is sampling herself in in certain cases. But I don't think that I initially got quite how much this was about everywhere she's been up to this point, more so than it even is like where about where she is now and where she might be going. Question number two? Yeah, question number two. I mean, what could I add to that? (laughs) So this is from... That was cathartic for me. Uh, This is from Florencia, who is asking the question that we were getting a little bit at at the top. Business stats question. What do you make of the incredible success of this album, even selling more than 1989? And how does this correlate with the campaign that many fans criticized and the folklore re-recording projects? 
let, let's start with the first part, just about the scope of the success of this record so far. What did fans criticize about the campaign? That it asked a whole lot of people. You had to stay up till midnight. It wasn't always clear what the Easter egging was. Just, it was, I complained about it. I was tired. Well, we did get tired. That's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, she cares about the numbers. And what she did with this campaign was she let, look, she is one of the biggest direct-to-fan consumer brands <laughs> in the world. And sh- that was the essence and core of the campaign. The videos that we got, she understood the power of TikTok as a platform. So she started most of the videos that she created on TikTok. And then they sort of percolated out to other platforms. So it was a very uh, digital, sort of forward-looking, next-generation platform campaign. But if you squint, you can see that she threw a bone to all of the traditional retailers or or platforms that have historically driven these, let's call them sort of traditional old numbers of album sales. She announces on MTV. That my brand new album comes out October 21st. She gives a an exclusive tr- song to Target, which by the way, when it, that thing is buried, we'll have that conversation. Oh, but, we'll talk about it. Yeah. So she takes care of Target. She talks a lot about the indie record store. She goes on late night television. Hey, guys. I know. Wow. We are so uh, so great to see you. Uh, you look fantastic. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so uh, much. That we... was really nice, guys. I mean, they were... Which nobody watches anymore, but she did that sort of traditional camp. She gave... Spotify, some exclusive stuff around lyrics. She she really touched all of the bases here that you would do in parallel to speaking directly to her core fan base. And I think those two things together are what drove the end numbers. I, I think she's finally learned how to do an album campaign effectively on her own, right? She When she got out of Big Machine... Big Machine ran all that stuff in the beginning, but she got out of Big Machine. She got into Universal. They obviously know how to run a big campaign, but she's the CMO. She's the CEO of this business. And what we saw after she dropped Folklore and Evermore was there was a lot of content that was on top of one another, right? And 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 it was pretty clear that Evermore got lost in the shuffle because of how quickly it followed Long Pond, how quickly that followed Folklore, you know, how the Fearless uh, single love story and everything else, the Fearless re-release came quickly. That's why she did the campaign that she did with Red and why Red did so well was it felt like she had a long runway and all the games that she put us through quite literally to, to get into the vault and decode everything, all that was, I think, part of the learning experience of how to really set up an album. And I think she took all of that and applied it to this campaign. And, and, and they did it because they care about the numbers. I mean, uh, you know, little birdies have whispered to us that they really do, that they wanted to drive the best sales that we've seen since like 2017 and 2015, right? since Adele in 2015, I think. Did you think this was possible? I, I figured it would do well. I just, uh, there are some, there are some numbers here that I don't know that it seemed like just in terms of how streaming works, how music consumption works. I'm surprised by how well it did, which it, it does not speak to how 
good of an album I think it is. I just didn't think that albums sold in this way anymore. I, I'm I'm less surprised by it because it felt like the vinyl in particular was geared to drive these numbers. And for as cute as it was when she sort of hugs the wall and says, it's a clock. But what I wanted to show you is that if you put all the back covers together, she's a clock. It's a clock. It's a clock. It makes a clock. What I really want to know is what's the average number of vinyl purchases per fan who bought vinyl? Because I bet it's north of two. And which is to say people bought multiple copies. And so that 550,000 sales... Probably some people bought one and some people bought all four. Yeah. And then there are the target ones and there are other ones. So like you could in the aggregate buy eight probably. Like, so what does that number look like? My guess is that it it was fewer than 100,000 fans who drove 550,000 vinyl sales. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But it would be interesting to see. It doesn't matter because in the aggregate, if if instead of sales, we had an engagement metric, I think the engagement metric would be even higher than the number of sales. Right? And that's what's so impressive about this. So I guess I'm not surprised because it just looked like they were telegraphing a campaign designed to do exactly this. And... You step back and you go like, who cares? Why? You know what? I don't know. She's going to tell us someday, but she really cares about legacy. She cares about legacy in the business. She cares about you know all of those sort of trophies on the wall or on the mantles. We said that they matter to her. She it, does that make her competitive? I don't know. I just I think that this is the biggest artist in the world who's had the hardest time being taken seriously as a big artist because of where she started, because she started as a teenage girl. I think there has been a lack of legitimacy bestowed on her by lots of people in the industry, right? But now you have to step back. Historically, and, I think that it's been a while since that was broadly true, but historically, yeah, yeah I but agree like, with that. check out my DMs, you know, from the podcast where I said, hey, we got to think about her in the context of very few people, including like Lennon and McCartney, right? Sure. We got a bunch of, well, fuck off. Like, what? no, but like, you have to do that. She's got three albums of the year. She's got, as you said, a catalog, maybe as much as 200 strong of like legitimate songs that work. And she's now got, you know, from a sales figure standpoint, certainly the most uh, impressive numbers in, in an era in which it's really hard to measure these things. It's just undeniable. So I think that there is something about putting points on the board that is... Poten- I, listen, I don't want to speculate psychologically what this is about and whether it's like, you know, covering up an insecurity driven by all of the naysayers and doubters that have fueled a lot of the songs that she's created. I'm just saying she cares. And this entire campaign was about driving these numbers. Do you think that not having a single out front impacted that one way or another? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I I guess if you, if you, you know, on the spot, I think I was surprised she didn't put a single out, but in hindsight, I guess what she has figured out is that the anticipation and the buzz and the moment of everyone discovering all at once is actually more powerful than all of us hearing Antihero for the first time. The singles just eat everything else. It, it just becomes... I. I I liked it. I almost hope she just does that. Like it's too I think she's gonna. It's too 
tempting to read way too much into a single and do this whole, okay, this is what the album's going to be about. And this this is what the album's going to sound like thing that just, just eats the whole process. Yeah. I am sitting here however many days after hearing Midnight's for the first time and not having had a lead single to sort of um, color how I was going to have that experience, feeling like this is the right way to do it. If you care about the album and she cares so much about the album as a concept and as a as its own entity, I would rather do it this way. Yeah, well, and I think putting out a single, by the way, eats up a lot of streams. And it makes it harder to have... 10 songs in the top 10 places on the Billboard Hot 100 if you've put out a single. And to be totally fair, when she only had nine, suddenly there were singles that were dropped on Apple Music that you could buy this week, right? To try to fuel, push, I don't know if it was Question or Vigilante Shit or into the top 10. So this was uh, very intentional and... Uh, I think these are the these are the accolades that she wanted. I mean, she just this morning retweeted the Billboard uh, tweet about the top ten songs in the Hot 100. Like they cared about it, and they the the campaign and the things that they asked the fan base to do were designed to make this happen. Doesn't make it any less impressive, but that was the point. Well, and on, on some level. It matters for her to be so big that she's undeniable because, look, when you said this is someone who's had to work so hard to be taken seriously, I I do think within the pop music consuming areas of the world and of the internet and of, of discourse, I do think that broadly people got there. And recognized that not taking her seriously was a was a big mistake. Now, outside of those communities, right? Like I, it was actually instructive for me and kind of a wake up call to see the immediate response to her dropping the visual trailer on Thursday Night Football, which was snarky in some areas and like confused mm-hmm. in other areas. And Al Michaels is going, "Oh, Kirk Herb Street, well." you only have sons, so your kids aren't excited about this. But if you have had teenage daughters, I'm sure they would be over the moon. Like, I don't even like Taylor Swift is fine. It it just struck me that Al Michaels is sitting there in the, the Amazon booth, not understanding that they need her more than she needs them in that moment. Yeah. Taylor Swift could have done that on a lot of different platforms probably without all that much impact one way or another to yeah. Taylor Swift. Now, Amazon's a yeah. good place to do that, but they're grateful for her being on their air in yeah. that moment, not the other way around. And it was interesting for me to realize that there are people, smart people, in those seats to whom that is not obvious. And it is to those people that if you do have numbers like this that are record-breaking and historic, you can't argue with it in some ways. So when she's trying to be part of those spaces and release things in, in those spaces, I do think that 
dominating sales like this has has some degree of meaning beyond just being able to say, good for me, I won. Well, she did win. And it feels like a win. I think I think it matters to the fan base. <laughs> like everybody yeah, totally. who participated in this and who followed the calendar instructions of what to do each day was personally invested in the outcome and the results. It's a very intelligent... It's it's like they own equity in Taylor Swift, the company, except they don't. But that's what you generally would do is you give equity to the employees so that they sort of have alignment. And uh, she's managed to, you know, give out a bunch of emotional equity that has everybody do the work. And the success is, hey, look, we, we're number one. We're first on the leaderboard. Foam finger time. She should sell that. I think she has sold foam fingers in the past. All right. Question three is from Lily B who asks, I'd love to hear you talk about concept albums. I think this is the first one she's called a concept album, but in my mind, almost all her albums are so specifically themed. They could be called concept albums. Why is this more of a concept album than 1989 or reputation? What's your answer to this, Nora? So I'm really glad that Lily brought this up to me. If she'd framed Midnight's as being a concept album about memory, it would make a little bit more sense to me than the concept being Midnight's. She mentioned on Graham Norton that she thought of it as like a creative writing prompt to think about the things that had kept her up at night and then write songs about those things. You could be you could be thinking about what could have been, you know, there's just so many yeah. possibilities. If you give that like if you think of that as like a creative writing prompt, which is what I did, that's where the album came from. And this album could I, I think it worked. Amazing. Clearly the product, the end product, the end result is something that I really love. I hear so few scenes in the album about specifically her being up in the middle of the night dealing with one of these things that it did confuse me a little bit initially. I I still, I don't think of it as distinct from anything else that she's done in a way that lends itself to, oh, well, that one was a concept album, so it sounds like this, or it, it deals with, you know, it tells this story in this way. So that's not something that's really tangible to me. However, if I think of it as this exercise in memory, it works a little bit better for me. I I think constraints breed creativity and she gave herself a box to play in to try to squeeze whatever juice she could from from this framework. And to your point, I think it worked. It does not... I I, I will say that Reputation, you'd say, was a concept album about what? About her journey through anger and being hurt as a public star. Lover was... Yeah, I don't really... I can hear the argument that Lover is an album about love and its many forms. Yes. Reputation tells a story, but I don't think is a concept album. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think 1989 is either. I don't think there's no. a common theme across it. But and to your point, like I would like this is an album about reflection and it would have made a little more sense as a concept if you did that. But look, whatever it takes. Give me more anti-hero and mastermind. It, it, yeah. It, like, I, I'm in on whatever process we went through. If this is a concept album, fantastic. The concept album thing, I think, has to do pretty much only with... Like, she's Taylor Swift. She can do anything in the world. Like you said, constraints breed creativity. She needed to to put some guardrails on the thing and be like, okay, how do I choose what I'm going to do next when I could do whatever I want? Here's this 
concept for how I'm going to start this work and narrow down the box I'm going to play in. I don't think it comes through as a concept album on the, the record. I've had moments where I've been like, wait, I thought this was a concept album. I don't totally get it. I don't think it's super significant, but I'm I'm glad Lily brought it up because that had crossed my mind as well. Yeah, and and I will say this. Whatever she decided to do by calling it a concept album did give her a very clear filter for what was on and what did not make, like what was on and what was off the album in terms of the songs, the volume of songs that she created. Like it feels pretty clear to me why the seven songs that didn't make this album got left on the, on the not really cutting room floor, but got left in, for three hours until she released them on top of us. Like that, I think, was an interesting prism to make those decisions. And I think sonically, there's a nice consistency. So if this was her way of saying, I'm going to create something that's succinct, that fits nicely into a box that does not whipsaw you back and forth, again, mission accomplished. Can you, so what do you, where are the lines there? Like, what are the songs from the, I don't, frankly, I don't get that. I I don't hear a lot of, and I think people really differ in this. I don't hear all that much on the the 3AM tracks that wouldn't have fit on the normal. I'm not saying that I think that there should have been swaps, but I just, I don't hear that many distinctions between those two. So I'm curious what the ones that you do are. Well, I I think the Desner tracks sound pretty different to me than the stuff that you yeah, did with Jack yeah, to begin with. Yeah, that's true. So then we're down to five. And Glitch, I understand, like just from a tempo standpoint, I mean, Paris Paris feels like a somewhat distant cousin of Karma, not like sonically, but just sort of energy-wise. Yeah, and maybe a little bejeweled. Best believe I'm still bejeweled when I walk in the room. I can still make the whole place shimmer. Sure. I just think bejeweled was... Bejeweled is a really big song and that continues to feel to me like one of the highlights of the album. But Glitch felt like an experiment, right? And she was working... Lavender Haze made the album, but, but Glitch, it felt like maybe it didn't fit in the tempo and sort of flow of, of the album. Cause really the so, only time, go ahead. So that I'm, I'm not saying I think these songs are better than the ones that made the original 13 and should have been swapped. I don't feel like that. I just don't hear them as any less about the midnight's concept than the ones that are on the original 13. And she, she said that they are, she said that the 13 make up the concept album and then the 3 a.m. tracks are different. I don't know what she means by that, which is fine. It's not a, this is not something that she talks a lot about midnights in the 3 a.m. tracks. Right. I, I don't. I don't hear that. I'm curious how she would describe that if she ever dove further into it, but maybe mm. we'll find out. Mm. Like I have my theory about what have, could have, should have as just like, it has to be on 3am. Otherwise 
it eats up so much oxygen. I, I think that's right. I don't know that they... It's hard for me to pinpoint a place where the three, where one song from the 3 a.m. section would have like interrupted the story or made the first 13 not work conceptually or would have just not fit into the idea. Okay. Well, let's see what other questions we get about this. All right. We definitely have a couple questions about the, the 3 a.m. tracks. But first... I love this question from Kayla. Would love your thoughts on how her characterization of romantic love has changed over the course of her discography. And then she goes on to mention that, you know, she used to write a lot about fairy tales and traditional family to more of what she's doing now, which Kayla thinks has an our house vibe, which she describes as life used to be so hard. Now everything is easy because of you. Life used to be so hard. Which actually, I love this question, but I disagree with the last part because I think what's changed is the portrayal of romantic love as something that fixes all your problems. And this end goal where you have a problem and it will be solved by, to borrow a phrase, a perfect kiss, right? Like Hmm. in some ways now, the roles in a relationship that she is asked to play are more likely to be complicated, right? And Lavender Hayes, she's resentful of either having to be a one-night or a wife. She writes about her ambition and her career goals getting in the way of relationships. He wanted a bride. I was making my own name. She's in that She seems to really not enjoy being asked to fit into a particular box as a woman or as a woman in a relationship. Whereas I think, you know, we, we think about songs like Love Story. It was just like, oh, you're going to find Prince Charming and then that's who you are and everything's great. And some of that is fun, right? I don't, I don't think that that like devalues those songs, but it's fascinating to see her grow up and I think have this very sort of like millennial perspective on what's asked of women in relationships and and why those things have to be so defining when actually, and I think you hear this in the songs too, it's so much more meaningful for her to feel the depth of a partnership and a relationship, not because it's a means to an end, not because it's something that's going to fix something else in her life and make everything okay, but just because it's, it's valuable and, and meaningful to her. And I do think you hear a ton of that in these songs. Yeah, I think two things. One is, this is probably one of the five hardest people in the world to be in relationship with if you're another human being because of the complications that come with being her. And I think 
there is a maturity and a self-awareness about that that has evolved over the course of the last couple of albums, including like Lover, where she understood, I think she tells us often, that Joe's ability to roll with it, Joe's ability to be fine when she's writing here in the year of our Lord 2022, still about John Mayer and Jake Gyllenhaal and all these exes and to be comfortable enough in himself and in their relationship to be to handle it. There just aren't many people who have a advanced enough emotional IQ coupled with self-confidence to be able to just handle that. Like most of most human beings I don't think are developed enough to be able to 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 manage what it means to be in relationship with her. So she feels like an adult talking about yeah. love. And and I think we can forgive her for maybe taking a little bit longer to get there only because like name another child star who's doing as well as she is. Yeah, like you kinda who, who came out a function Timberlake. Okay. Okay, Timberlake. Who else? Like really if we go down the list of people who are as famous as she is now yeah, and, I mean, and look, and this is no then. shade to Timberlake, but but of both of these people have at times made mistakes in their lives. I think for, Timberlake for sure. has, has transgressed along the way in slightly more serious ways too. But I, I largely take your point. He is relatively speaking, seems to be thriving. Yeah. I, I just I cut a little bit of slack that it took her a little while to write about love in a more sort of adult mature way because of those two factors. One is she she her brain development just had to have been affected by being an object of worship for a fan base like that. Like it just is not a natural thing for a human being to have to absorb at that age. And then secondarily that like it's just really she clearly found somebody who could actually teach her a bit about what it means to be in a normal functioning relationship because it just just with everything that is around her the monster you know lurching towards your city the monster on the hill lurching towards your city uh, and everybody else is the sexy baby like that is the story And, and and the silly but but real description of what it's like to be her and and how difficult and weird it must be to to be in a relationship with her if you don't have the um, sort of advanced high IQ uh, EQ metrics that it sounds like Joe Alwyn has. It do be like that sometimes. Everybody is a sexy baby. <laughs> has it gotten it's easier so for good. you to hear? I love it. Easier. I it goes down like honey every single time. I love that line. I think it's so funny. Like now, do I laugh? Yes, of course I laugh. But I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I I think that's all true. The thing that cracks me up about it is she's what thirty two. She and yeah. Joe met when she was twenty six. Like this is not a you know. They're not the old people making out of the bar no. that we saw. Oh God! Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Why would you do that to me? (laughs) God, like she's that old, Nora. Oh, (laughs) horrible! You, yeah, that's right. It's not like she's that old. That's true, but I do think that by that age, I think people have had a more functional relationship than than the ones that she's been. Tons, tons of people have. Tons of people haven't. Right? Like, 
somebody having their first serious, like really meaningful partner at 26. Yeah, not a big deal. Like there's tons and tons and tons of people listening to that album right now going like, not even just this album, but fans of hers going through her entire discography being like, the journey I feel like I've been on for Taylor Swift to find the love of her life at the ripe old age of 26. Like, you weren't frozen in amber, girl. Yeah. It's also Um, interesting that I'm not sure she has declared him the love of her life, which I sort of, like, she rejected a lot of the characterization of this relationship on this album. Like, it just feels like she's more present and, you know, appreciative of him, but she doesn't feel the need to put a label on it or sort of create some, I I don't know. It it feels like they go moment to moment doing the best that they can and she doesn't, anyway, this just feels like what she's teaching us on the album. The the rejection of the wife thing was a big deal, right? Because there's been so much speculation. Is she married? She's got to be already married. Is she having the baby? Is she Like all that shit that at some point she just said, you know what, that's not actually even how we think about it. Well, or... It's a rejection of maybe we think about it that way. Maybe we don't. I'm not telling you. Neither is Joe. And how absurd is it that nobody can see her in a way that can exist outside of having that information about her relationship status, right? Like, I don't think... (laughs) I, I didn't listen to this album and be like, Taylor Swift thinks that marriage is terrible and she never wants to do it. No. I listen to this album and, and think like in the same way that people are at their Thanksgiving dinner table with their aunts being like, stop asking me when I'm getting married. Like, I don't know. But it, and but it we're shouldn't a be an from, indictment yeah. on a relationship or a person either way. It's just not a nuanced enough way of thinking about. But, but, but we're a long ways away from marry me, Juliet, like it pulled out a ring and like that, yes. that that's gone. And she's now sort of rejecting it as an end goal goal in a relationship. Well, but I but I don't think that it's about the relationship because think about the lyrics there. Marry me, Juliet, you'll never have to be alone. Now we have one of the core songs from this album that at a point in her life from everything that we can tell, right, which is not we do not have anywhere near perfect insight into their relationship, her life, whatever. From everything we can tell, she is, she's told us she's doing better than she ever was. They've been together for a really long time. And she's still writing a song where the core line is, you're on your own, kid. You always have been. You always will be. There's some part of us that is that always has to, you know, be the person who's there for ourselves. Hmm. And I think a, a pretty consistent theme here is like, you can get, so, so much and have this really, really meaningful, important relationship that is solid and and they could be together forever and be perfect people for each other and everything could be great. It's not going to save her from losses people experience in life. It doesn't completely cauterize every wound from past hurt. Like, you have to love love and a relationship for the sake of what it is, it doesn't solve all your problems. Whereas mm. I think in the past, there's this idea that like you snap your fingers and all of the sprinkle fairy dust comes and it's all good. No more fairy dust, nor. Well, she did keep the castle. 
because she can afford it after all these streams and album purchases. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Taylor shouldn't be winning castles in, in Bejeweled games. Buy it yourself. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink. With seven rewards, it's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm going to be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms. All rights reserved. Great question from Audrey. When are we getting hits different on Spotify? I don't know if you have thoughts on this. I did look up some old data, and the bad news is that with 1989... The Target Deluxe tracks, including New Romantics, did not go on streaming services for months after that album came out. Came yeah. out in October. They went up one at a time in February and March. The good news is that streaming has obviously come a long way since then, and Taylor is a much happier partner with services like Spotify than she was at that time. So I don't think it'll be that long. But man, every day hits different is not on Spotify. is a very, very difficult day for yours truly. Yeah, there's some window that uh, just like it takes a while for movies to come out of the or it used to take a while for movies to come out of theaters onto streaming services. Like it's the same thing here. The deal with Target was we'll give you some exclusivity and it's probably three to six months and then it's going to be on Spotify. And until then, you just have to, you know, just do a search on YouTube. You'll be fine. I have another point on this, but I'm, it's going to come up in a different question. So we'll save it for later. Okay. Um, Arushi, I hope I'm getting that right, asks, did Nora come around on the Mastermind Bridge? Oh, this is for me. Because it's truly the key to the whole album. No one wanted to play with me as a little kid. So I've been scheming like a criminal ever since. All right. Probably not in the way that you want me to. I am 
a little bit better with it now because I've just decided carefully. I just, it does not like, look, if the point of that bridge is for it to hit me as a true, honest word for word, raw confession, that is her mission statement for why she's done everything the way that she's done it. It doesn't hit me because she's a much more complicated person than just like, Nobody wanted to hang out with me, so I did all of this stuff. It does work for me as meta-narrative, that there's absolutely truth in that, but she also knows how she's used that story to narrativize her life and her decisions. And she knows that there's something, there's both something true and there's both something manipulative about doing it at the same time. And that is the beauty of the song. And if I think about it in that way, it works for me. I'm still not, I, I think it is musically not the best part of that song by a long shot. Um, that doesn't mean it's bad. That just means that there are other parts of Mastermind that I think are spectacular. And I, I don't think she sounds as good on the bridge as she does um, on the verses and chorus of, of the song. But I do think if I think of it as... Do you think that's intentional? Do you think that maybe she's playing a, a version of her younger self there in that bridge? If she... Or do you think they just screwed up the vocal and she didn't put the shoes on right I just don't think it's I, I don't think it's screwed up I just don't think it sounds amazing like and I, I I don't hear it as intentional that's an interesting thought but it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work for me to go okay if I squint and listen to it this way then I can interpret it this way which feels like a more structurally sound interpretation of the song that I can get behind and that's okay. Like I'm willing to do quite a bit of work if it helps me hear a song that I like a lot in a way that's more compelling to me, but it's just, it it takes me a lot to get there with that part of the song. But I have, I've inched closer by just sort of accepting it as it's a little bit confession and it's a little bit wink. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, you know how I feel about the verse. I think it's the key to understanding the album. And I think she's telling us a lot of herself, but, I hear that you are still feeling like you have to do mental gymnastics to get there. All right. Here's another one. Any comment? This is from Heidi. Any commentary on antihero being a response to the old joke people would make about Taylor writing a song called maybe I'm the problem. I have to be honest with you, Nathan. I included this question just so that I could say my commentary is that this is a very good point. It's me. What do you mean? Did you ever see that meme that like annoying people would throw around earlier in her career where it would just be like her face and it would say, maybe Taylor Swift should write a song called maybe I'm the problem because, you know, in the era of right. Oh, don't write a song about Taylor Swift. Don't break. Don't date Taylor Swift. She'll write a song about you. So you can get yourself to (laughs) that, but not that the mastermind bridge is. I mean, I don't think it's about that. I also don't think, by the way, like there's there's the whole thing about, um, we got a couple questions about the anti-hero chorus being written for, so that it would be conducive to TikTok trends. This also does not bother me because I think it's good if I thought it were crappy and crappy because it were in service of creating TikToks and having people make TikToks out of it. That would annoy me. I don't think that that was the, raison d'etre for this entire chorus. Whoa! 
French. <laughs> Settle Hello. down, Nora. Do you take my point? I, I also take your rolling R's. Sacre bleu. You listen to too much Paris. I love Paris. I was taken by the view like we were in Paris. Okay, Answer my enough. question. <laughs> Which, I take your point. Okay. All right. I love Antihero. Uh, it's a huge, great song. It's me. It's also a huge, great chorus, right? Like, again, yes, it is like, do I think that at some point it crossed her mind and basically everybody who was involved in making the song's mind of, oh, people are going to make really funny TikToks to the sound of this song because it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me is perfect for that. I'm sure they know that. They've known that for a very long time. Also, it's going to be sick live. It's really catchy. And it's like, it, it's sort of one of those why use 20 words when you can use five. Like it, it's, it's, it's simplicity lends itself to meme ability, but it's also a cool part of the song. So if it were a bad part of the song, I might have an issue with it. It's a good part of the song, so I don't. Okay. All right, here's another one about the 3AM tracks. So we can sort of close the loop on that. This is from Kat. If you had to switch out one or two things from the regular album with 3AM tracks, which ones would you pick? Hits different could also be included in this. It, would you swap it? You'd swap out hits different. Yeah, I would. Man, I like thematically swapping it with labyrinth is yeah, sort of weird. It's probably what I would do just because that still is my cut. The reason I would swap it is because Hits Different is a real crowd pleaser song. Like, I think it's a great song. You don't need any fluency with Taylor Swift to get that song, love that song. It's super fun. It bums me out that that's the one song, even with these ridiculous sales numbers. I think some people who would love that song are not going to hear that song. And that bums me out. And that's why I wish it were. That's why I would make it my swap if I could. Why wouldn't you swap woulda, coulda, shoulda? Because it's too powerful. It's Listen too strong. To it has to be 19. This is Lord of the Rings. The we f- can't unleash it. Give us the precious. Seriously, I mean, though. But that's what I do. I mean, I, you know, I think the last minute and a half of Woulda, Coulda, Shoulda is objectively one of the best moments of the entire project. Yeah, me too. It's just soaring and powerful. Like, it's terrific. And does, however, sound different than Midnight's to me. It sounds like an Aaron Dessner track. It sounds like the rock album that people want her to make. Uh, so I'm not sure that it would, you know, 
it would mess with whatever she means by concept album. But I, I feel about this song that it's just not going to be heard in the way that it ought to. And, and I think it's a, I think it matters. Hmm. All right. From Joey, what song do you desperately need to hear live? Well, I think you just answered that a little while ago, huh? Antihero? Yeah. I'm very excited to be in a crowd of people being like, I'm the problem! <laughs> Je suis le problème! Oh, God, here we go. So he calls me up and he's like, Je t'aime, je t'aime toujours. Je ne sais pas, no. We are never getting back together, like, ever. No! Yeah, okay. I'm more excited about Bejeweled Live. Diamonds in my eyes. I polish up real. I polish up real. Nice. Ooh. Yeah, I just think it's going to... I think it's going to hit harder. I think it's going to rock a little bit more. And... Uh, oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, and I think she's going to do cool shit with the polish up real nice. And visually, there's a lot they can do with the theme. It's going to be great. The other one that I'm excited for is Karma. Karma is just going to be fun. It's going to be fun to be silly all together. There's a lot of opportunity to be silly. Do you think she's definitely going to play Karma live? I hope so. Yes. Yes, I do. Do you think she may not? Nathan! <laughs> How long is this concert supposed to be? A hundred hours. <laughs> Yeah, well, she's gonna fall at over. At some point, at some point, we might need to construct our our dream set lists. That's fine. Um, That's fine. We can. I mean, we got to understand exactly the format of this tour. But well, so okay. Here's here's a related question from Blanche. Do you think an added benefit of Midnight songs sounding like previous entries in her discography means she performs more medleys on tour? I.e., I think he knows in Lavender Haze. First of all, Blanche. Name from the Golden Girls, outstanding. Second Rock of all, on Blanche. <laughs> second of all, is she going to do more medleys? I hope not. Yeah, me too. I, it leaves me unfulfilled. I was enchanted to meet you. He said, "Let's get out of this town, drive out of the city." Like if <laughs> if albums matter. I'm very like, sorry. Songs matter. I don't want a TikTok concert, you know, where like yeah. I get little clips of stuff. Like, let's go perform the damn song if, if if it mattered. And one of the things about this album, by the way, that's interesting is that all of these songs are pretty damn short. Like, she does not have 10 minute all too well, not even five minute all too well on this album. Like, she gets the she gets the points across. And boom, we're done in under three minutes in a lot of cases. But like, I want to hear an entire song. So I'm not excited about the medley stuff. It just doesn't get me. It doesn't get me where I want to be in terms of seeing, seeing like watching how she, like I saw her do Exile on stage with Bonnie Vera at Wembley Arena. It, you, you probably saw that. She, she flew there yeah. last, last week and, and did it. I think I've seen this thing before And I didn't like the ending I'm not your problem anymore Don't throw arrows at me. I think she's in such pop mode. She really sang that hard. 
Like she, yeah, she was over singing is probably not the right word, but I think if she could go back and, and sing that again, like she'd turn down the inner monitors, she'd get a different mix and she'd sing it like the way that she sang it in the long pond studios, which is where like, they melded a little bit more easily. Yeah. And she, it, and, and the, the tone of her voice was softer there. It felt like she sort of showed up and sang it pop star style, but it, like, what else are you going to do? Like he just put a spotlight on her in the middle of the stage. Like I get it. You know what I mean? Right. But, but, um, anyway, also I, it was I, just very cool to see her give that song a moment, but I, I, I agree with you on the vocal. I had the same reaction. So look, we'll see. I am with you. So I think there, you know, there'll be some mashups, but it's instructive to look at how she's used mashups in the past. On the Reputation tour, there were four of them, right? But only two of them involved songs from the album that she was touring. So what album there was, is she touring? She's touring. Well, so hold on, five we'll and a half we'll albums. We'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. But she did the style love story you belong with me mashup. Then she did the Bad Blood Should Have Said No mashup. Then there was Long Live and New Year's Day. So New Year's Day is sort of like a featured song from the era that she was representing centrally in in that tour. And then there was the We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things mashup. First of all, New Year's Day, song I love. This is why we can't have nice things. Song I also love and I think is super fun. Neither one of those is like delicate or getaway car, right? Mm -hmm. She's not even on a set list that had quite a few mashups. Mostly they're enabling the concert to still feel like she's getting the greatest hits in there. And she's still allowing the show to press the button of, oh my God, I went to the Taylor Swift show and she sang a little bit of love story. And I got to hear that and I love that song and that song has so much history and I've known it and loved it for years and years and years and it's cool to hear that on stage. But she's not saying, here's the album that I'm on tour with and the most important songs for me to to perform right now, I'm giving you 45 seconds instead of three minutes, right? Like she gives the songs their time to breathe. I I don't Mm. think she'll do anything different here. I do think that there will be some mashups, but I think that because she's got a lot of options on this album. Right. And she can't, it's, I I don't want to say can't, but it's hard for her to do any sort of show, any sort of big show where she doesn't play some of the hits. And I think doing some mashups enables her to do that, but I don't, I I think that boxes. Yeah, and in a good way. Like, it's good can to check those boxes. I want to hear those songs. Can you walk away happy hearing 
like half of Love Story? Yeah. Why do you even need to hear half of it? And, and now, do we need to? Because if you went to Reputation, you heard it in that format. I mean, that's the only, that, that is literally the only song where I'm kind of like, ah. There's probably well, look, no way we're performing it hurts, right? Like 11 minutes. People love hearing that song. T- yeah, 10 minutes are gone out of the show for 10 minutes all too well. They say all's well, it ends well, but I'm in a new hell every time. So now you got to start walking back. What do we have left? You got like, at most, it's going to be a two hour show. So now you got 110 minutes. And divide it by five or six. And that's that's what she's up against. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, wish look, I was, I was laughing at one of those thing, Wall Street Journal pieces that, that quoted us being like, oh my God, what a problem she's facing. I don't know if I would call it a problem. Yeah, it's, it's not a, a challenge. Pro- it's an opportunity. It's, like, it's not a problem. Oh, woe is me. Right. Exactly. Like, oh, what are you talking about? All of my award-winning albums. How will I perform them all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is it is an interesting challenge. And that that's what we have been talking about for a long time on this podcast is that we are hoping that she's going to do something somewhat innovative to be able to present these volumes of songs that have not been on tour. Nothing since the Reputation Tour has been played live in any meaningful way. I want to see what she does. I just to close the loop, one, I, I think there will be medleys. But I think that the medleys Mid- will actually not be heavy on Midnight's content. I yeah. also think slash hope. And I would not have a problem with this, even if I went to a show where I didn't hear my dream songs to hear. I think there's going to be some rotating. Like, or at least I hope In there the will be. If, if I designed this, there would be like a three song, you know, little mini act where maybe there's 10 songs that are a part of that. And on any given night, she does three of them. And there's some, maybe it's sort of the more stripped folklore evermore stuff. Obviously this all depends on what the context is, what the venue is, how she, how she attacks this. But if it were the stripped down folklore evermore songs, maybe there's 10 of them that make the most sense to be part of the tour. And I'm not saying that's the only place that we hear folklore evermore, but maybe there's a collection of songs that work in that context, but she rotates which ones people hear. And there's a little bit of luck of the draw, but the benefit is that it feels a little bit bespoke and special and everything feels different. And and each show is unique in some way. So I can see stuff like that happening. And I actually think that that's more, that to me is more special than taking a meaningful song that's new, that's never been part of a live show and saying, well, we're going to get 30 seconds of it in this mashup. Look, I just want Cruel Summer end to end, okay? Everything else can fuck off. Give me Cruel Summer. (laughs) If that shit goes in a medley with like Lavender Haze, I am rioting. (laughs) I think you're going to be okay. One man, riot. I think you're going to be okay. Um, so another, this is like the, this is a section of the questions that are all about touring. Cause that's what people are so excited about right now. Uh, from Graham, how does Midnight's change her touring strategy overall? Like has this, having heard the album, having spent the week since the album, 
where are you on? Are we hearing this stuff in stadiums? Are there residencies? How does it work? Well, I don't know that it changes their strategy. It gives her a few more stadium anthems that are current, like yeah. we talked about. So we know that she's part of the touring is definitely going to be in a stadium. Now, uh, where else it flows from? I, it, it does complicate things because there's just so much content. She's going to have to think hard about uh, how to perform all this stuff. And I, I, I just, for me, it would be residencies in cities across different venues. And I understand that it comes with all kinds of who gets into the smaller venues and how do you manage the secondary market for this stuff. But uh, I think the best direct-to-fan CEO, CMO in the world can figure some of those problems out, including you know, if she was able to figure out what fans to let into her house... I think she can probably figure out how to identify some fans to let into uh, some special smaller shows. But I don't know. A lot of the secret sessioners are, are out here causing problems. But I, overall, I take your point. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, look, it, it, the most interesting thing to me about the tour was not so much the release of Midnight's, but again, getting on stage with Bon Iver and, by the way, Aaron Dessner on piano at. Uh, Wembley Arena in London. So I, I want to see whether... I, I'm keeping my eye as much on her tour dates as I am on the tour dates of the National slash Aaron Dessner slash Bleachers slash Jack Antonoff slash Bon Iver slash Justin Vernon. Okay, actually, a, people asked this question separately, but I'm inserting it because getting you on the record on this has been requested a lot. Make your case for why their availability interest in being part of this thing changes what she can perform because it's not as though you can't just have somebody else do the parts. I think that, uh, well, you you can't really have somebody else do Justin Vernon's background vocals. Vocals. That's the hard part. I look, I think that there was something magical about those sessions and that there's a reason that they performed with her on the Grammys. There's a reason that they sat at the table with her. Like this was kind of their thing together. Long Pond showed that somebody else could play the parts. They could. It just will feel like a little bit of a different experience if it's just her and not Desner doing his thing because so much of that music was from his hard drive. So when you say, is she going to get Aaron Dessner and Justin Vernon to come out on tour with her because that tells us if she's going to be doing the stuff that they worked on together. What you're saying is like, that's grounded in, you think that's what she would want to do because you think that those those experiences were meaningful. She'll play those songs if those guys can't come out on tour. She'll find her band can play anything for crying out loud. If, if we've seen it, all the right. guest stars like they, they can figure it out. That's not the problem. I just wonder if there is a a, a more interesting in it. And here's the truth: Bon Iver's not coming out on tour with her unless the band opens for her, right? Because he doesn't. He's not involved in enough songs for it to be a good use of his time. It's really Desner. Imagine yeah. a Taylor Swift stadium tour. I don't know. Opened it, by the Dad Rockers. You never know. You never know. 
uh, listen, if she was going to do a lover fest today, I guarantee you she'd have a side stage that had a whole lot of Dad Rock Island. So weird, but so like the chaotic energy of that would be so spectacular. I can't even imagine it. Yeah, well, she's going to, she has a lot of power with her fan base. Like she just has to decide where she wants to point the, the hot white light. And I, I promise you that more people listen to Boney Vera in the national than did before the folklore and evermore projects. Right. So she, she's, she's got the ability to do that. I, I let, let me not say that they won't. Sorry. I'm going to use a bunch of double negatives. Let me just say it directly. She will play folklore slash evermore songs on this tour, regardless of the availability of those guys. I just think it becomes a real moment if in an intimate setting with horns and strings and the original players that they're actually doing it. Time, curious time. Give me no compasses, give me no signs. Were there clues I didn't see? Got it. And the other point about Justin Vernon's vocals is meaningful. Like her band can play anything. There is nobody else in the world that sounds like that guy. No. So there's some of that I think does matter. All right. Taylor's version asks, is there a song off Midnight's you think will be her tour opener? What do you think? So I think it's probably the album opener. I think Lavender Hayes works in that context too, but my dark horse would definitely be Bejeweled. Really? For me. Baby love, I think I've been a little too kind. You don't think and she just would open the show by saying hi and then go into Antihero? It's me. It's me. Hi. Hi, I'm the... Pro- no. Antihero is too big of a deal. You can't like I I am so excited to hear Antihero live that if it's the first thing when it's over, it'll be sort of like, oh, it's over. Like I don't want to lose the anticipation for that moment immediately. It's like I went to see Mumford and Sons and they played I Will Wait the second song out of the gate. It was like, holy shit, where do we go from? I wanted to wait a little bit more, guys. (laughs) Yeah. All right. There you go. You think it's anti-hero? As an opener, that's what I would think that they just because they, of the it's me hi. Yeah, I'm, exactly. Um, exactly. That that she would appear and or you'd hear it and then boom, you see her and they go into it. I don't know. I see I think you could do you could have just as much fun with the like best believe I'm still bejeweled. I'm back. I'm on stage. I'm doing a big concert. I'm Taylor Swift. I've got cats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that speak French. Oh my God. I bet they do speak French. They probably have the like bilingual nanny situation. What else we got? <laughs> All right. Last question. And then we'll, we'll log off. Uh, this is from Abby. How soon is too soon for the next re-record? Her birthday is not too soon. It's coming. And is it speak now because of the Bejeweled music video? I mean, I think based on everything that we saw in that video, it it would be weird if it wasn't. All right. I'm just saying, I tiptoed into the waters of my the speak now lawsuit is actually 
causing real problems take before. Yeah. If we could speak now Taylor's version before 1989 Taylor's version, I think that's why. Just because it really seemed like 1989 was coming. And no skin off my nose. I'm excited to hear both. I don't care what order they come in. I'm just saying if speak now comes first, I there's got to be a reason. And that is the most obvious reason why. I think it's it's because she's still in negotiation trying to get her master's back. And that once she drops 1989, it it's significantly... Over. Yeah, it significantly crushes the value. I, generally speaking, I don't totally understand why they aren't all out right now. Other than I think maybe the fearless uh, red contrast is what shaped it, which is that even though you're you're putting it out there, you've still got to create a campaign around it to get people to swap out on their own individual playlists. And that that's probably what drives a lot of the streaming of her catalog. And so she needs some time to build it up. But like, hey, if the objective is take the money away from those people and put the money and the ownership into my own pocket, then again, the strategy you would think would be, let's get it out as quickly as possible. And we know that 1989, at least most of it, if not all of it, is in the bag. It sure looks from the Bejeweled video that... Um, I almost said the Bedazzled video. <laughs> the Bedazzler. Uh, you Bedazzled. The Bejeweled video that Speak Now is next. And and I I hear you say that you think it's a copyright lawsuit. I, I think it's it's about leverage in in the overall conversation that has to be whether hot or cold in any given moment, it has to be a continuing dialogue because uh, she's going to get that catalog back someday. She is. You think so? I think it's the inevitable outcome. Like You just can't work outside of her given all of the energy that we have seen and the engagement from this fan base. Do you want to go to war with that? And so anybody... I mean, no, no. Of course not. But at, at a certain point, it, it's... No, no. The people I who do own kind of things, think that she... I think she can win this without getting them back. Maybe, but I think she wants them back. She still wants them back. She yeah. want, And yeah. she talked about it on Graham Norton. She wants them back. And yes, she decided, well, I did it before. I'll do it again. It's a matter of principle for her. Yeah. And, and so she's going to do whatever she needs to do to get them back. And look, these people who own these things, they're financial investors. They deeply understand the meaning of a sunk cost. They right. are not emotionally invested in this catalog at all. And so if if the value of it is going to go down and get smaller out in time, they are very, very interested in selling it right now for more money. That is their only job is, yep. is, to, is to generate a return. And so once she puts out 1989, the value of that asset goes way, way down. Because it just it streamed a lot more than Speak Now. So, so then what? We heard all those snippets of songs as sort of like, hey, I can do this. I can do this at any time. I've got absolutely. it in the bag. Absolutely. It feels like shots all across right. the bow. Now, if she wants to make it cheaper for her to buy, you would think 1989 would come out now because it would devalue right. the catalog and she'd go. But I, I, think, I think that there is something very strategic about the order of these things and uh, it has to be driven in part by what's going on behind the scenes. But Nora, one of the things that's going on behind the scenes is this copyright lawsuit. All right. That was 13 questions. I'm adding a bonus from me and then we're going to go. Who's doing Bev on tour? 
Bev is doing Bev. Nice boy Ed is going to do Bev. Bev. You wanted a comfortable, I wanted that pain. You wanted a pride, I was making my own lane. All right. Oh, this so, has been so, every so, single so, album of Taylor Swift. Every single album is here, Bev. I'm Nora Princiati. That's Bev. Thank you Bev. for listening. Thank you. As always, to the wonderful Kaya McMullen for her production on this episode. And to you you for listening. Stop it! This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.